Um, hand out naturally, partly because I suspect you of not having brought in, lugged in the big book. Um, and I suspect right, right, Lily? Um, okay. Um, so, uh, Courtney, if you could just give these to the various rows. Um, people in my section, I don't know, tell me if this is true of your section, but people in my section, um, if you handed a paper in to me, um, you should by now know its disposition. So if anyone hasn't heard back from me, it means that either I lost or never got your paper. Um, so let me know. If you haven't handed in a paper yet, um, the um, coach is approaching the region in which it turns into a pumpkin. Um, so you want to be thinking about starting your first paper um, if you haven't done so yet. Um, there's a uh, famous um, story about Augustine um, based on, the, on one of the Gospels. So in one of the Gospels, do people know about the two thieves? So um, in a couple of the Gospels, when Jesus is crucified, there are um, two thieves who are crucified with him. And part of um, the point of the story is how he's being belittled by being um, crucified with thieves. Um, this is something that various writers in English have um, gotten interested in. The great um, 17th century um, poet George Herbert, in his poem Redemption, talks about how he, the speaker, um, was looking for his landlord in order to try to get better terms on his rent, um, that rent being human life. And the landlord is the Lord who is the Lord of all lands, and he looks for him everywhere to try to negotiate with him. It's a sonnet, and he's not finding him anywhere. And finally, with only two lines left of the sonnet, 12 lines of looking and not finding, and we're hurtling on towards the end, and finally, um, the, the sonnet ends, at length I heard a ragged noise and mirth of thieves and murderers. There I him espied, who straight your suit is granted, said, and died. So that's where we find out who the landlord is. Um, but he's found among thieves and murderers, not um, among the um, high nobility, the aristocracy, where the poor tenant has been looking for him. And so part of the point was that, according to the Gospels, Jesus is crucified with thieves, as a way of putting him down, but it's in fact another way of showing his generosity um, towards all of us fallen people. So that's the gospel story. In one version of that story, one of the thieves starts making fun of Jesus on the cross. So they're all three being crucified, and one of them turns to Jesus and says, look at you, you were supposed to be the king of the Jews, and here you are being crucified with us, um, and he's just abusive. And the other thief turns to the first one and says, why are you abusing him? He's suffering the way we are. And Jesus turns to the second thief and says, tonight you will dine with me in paradise. Um, so St. Augustine loves this story, and he tells 
the moral of the story like this, that um, you should not despair because one of the thieves was saved. You should not presume because one of the thieves was damned. That's Augustine's um, Twitter-length moral of the story of the two thieves. So I say the same to you about your papers. If you hand it, have not yet handed in your papers, do not despair. You can still get them in. Um, but do not presume. Get them in. So those of you, and there are not many, but those of you who, but there are some. You're not alone. If you haven't handed in your paper, you're not the only person. If thou hast not handed it, handed in thy paper, thou art not the only one. But um, most of you have. So um, it's time to start thinking about writing one if you haven't. Um, okay, we're going to start talking about words worth saying. What I brought in um, are a bunch of ballads and pseudo-ballads, the last of which is a Wordsworthian lyrical ballad. So um, if you looked at the table of contents, if you read, as I'm sure you did, um, the preface or the selections from the preface to lyrical ballads, um, what you will know is that Wordsworth and his um, very close friend Samuel Taylor Coleridge, they were also neighbors, published a book of poems in 1798 called Lyrical Ballads. And Lyrical Ballads is probably the most important book of poetry published in the last 250 years, at least in English. Um, probably the most important book of poetry published in English since Paradise Lost. Um, and part of, it was published anonymously. Um, we know because they later said who wrote which poem, um, but it's um, mostly um, but not a vast majority, but a majority of the poems are by Wordsworth, but a substantial minority of them are by Coleridge. Coleridge was two years younger than Wordsworth. As I say, they were neighbors and best friends. When Lyrical Ballads was published first, Wordsworth was 28 and Coleridge was 26. And Lyrical Ballads was the invention of modern poetry. Um, any kind of um, poetry that you might want to be writing any kind of poetry most likely that you like reading in English nowadays can ultimately trace um, its heritage back to lyrical ballads. And um, I want to just pause for a moment on the two elements of that title. It's a very famous title um, and either you've never heard of it before in which case it's like Reservoir Dogs, it's a title. Um, or you have heard of it before, it's famous, and it's like Reservoir Dogs. It's that title. Um, but the meaning of the title is something that people tend to skip over. And so this is what I want to say about the meaning of that title, or just draw your attention to, that the idea of a ballad and the idea of a lyric are vastly different from each other. What we mean by lyric and what we mean by ballad, those are vastly different kinds of poetry. Lyric poetry, as we understand it, partly because of lyrical ballads, but also um, as something that predates, an idea that predates lyrical ballads. Lyrical poetry tends to be poetry in the first person. Lyrical poetry tends to be poetry in which a speaker um, usually rightly thought to be the poet him or herself, but in which a speaker describes how he or she feels about something, responds to something, 
is experiencing um, her presence in the world or her alienation from the world in which she is present. Um, Wallace Stevens, the great 20th century American poet, writes in one of his poems, from this the poem springs that we live in a place that is not our own and much more not ourselves. And hard it is in spite of blazoned days. So that poems come from our sense of being outsiders in our own world. Um, poems come from a sense of the difference between the I, the, sub, the subject that ams, um, as I've put it before, and the world in which we find ourselves. The philosopher Heidegger says the experience of being human is the experience of finding yourself thrown into the world. And that experience of being thrown, Heidegger coins the word thrownness for it. That experience of being thrown into the world and of somehow feeling that you have to think it through and think it through in words and think it through in a poem, that is the experience of lyric. And what you may be thrown into is love. What you may experience is the combination of, um, of ecstasy and anxiety um, that will lead to a love poem. Or you may be thrown into an experience of the ephemerality of things, a sense of human mortality or human fragility. And you may write poems of mourning. But all such poems tend to be lyric poems. In Paradise Lost, we looked a little bit at lyric parts of what is an epic. The story of Paradise Lost is the story of Adam and Eve and Satan and God and the sun and the archangels and the other fallen angels, but it's also a story of our woe. It's a story of um, becoming blind as Milton has become blind. It's also, in the invocations to book seven and book nine, um, a story about trying to tell this story and not knowing whether I'll be able to, whether I, Milton, will be able to, unless an age too late or cold climate or years damp my intended wing depressed. That's the lyrical moment. And then he goes on, and much they may, if all be mine, not hers, that is not the muses, who brings it nightly to my ears. So there are lyrical moments in Paradise Lost, but Paradise Lost is mainly not a lyrical poem. Lyrical poems are poems of intense first-person, often meditative experience. Not necessarily contemplative, but thinking through something, thinking through your, the fact of your being in a world that is not your own, where the only thing you have to counter that sense of it's not being your own is thought. Ballads, on the other hand, tend to be vastly different kinds of poems. They tend to be third-person stories. They tend to be poems which tell often ghost stories, often spooky stories, stories sometimes with an eerie or an uncanny punchline. Um, and ballads are generally anonymous. 
in the middle of the 18th century. Before that as well, um, one of the ballads actually that is a source for King Lear is a ballad which is called the Ballad of Poor Mad Tom, um, or the Ballad of Tom of Bedlam. And Shakespeare takes the character from that ballad, um, and or Edgar takes the character from that ballad and bases himself on Tom of Bedlam. But ballads tend to be stories which have been repeated for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, spoken, recited, sung um, as entertainment, as comfort, as distraction, as interest by older generations to younger generations, by parents to children, by older siblings to younger siblings, um, by grandparents and uncles and aunts to those who are riveted by the stories. And they get remembered because they're heard in youth and then recollected later on and repeated. But as with jokes, as with riddles, as with um, wrong song lyrics, the repetitions are always the most memorable parts, and the parts that don't get remembered get pieced together until something memorable comes out. So ballads are anonymous poems, not only in the sense that we don't know who first wrote a ballad, but in the sense that no person first wrote it, that ballads develop as they are shared, that they change as they are remembered and semi-remembered and semi-forgotten and semi-recomposed on the fly. So ballads are the very opposite, you could say, of lyrics. And what Wordsworth and Coleridge did in calling a book lyrical ballads was to say both these kinds of poems, which basically share the fact that they're short, both these kinds of poems can be combined together in what's essential about them. Now, we've already seen something like that in Blake in Songs of Innocence and of Experience. And the thing about Songs of Innocence and of Experience is um, Blake was um, 13 years older than Wordsworth. Wordsworth never knew his work. Wordsworth never heard of Blake. Um, Blake did hear of Wordsworth and had ambivalent feelings about him. Um, but a similar sort of um, idea has come to Blake as has come to Wordsworth and Coleridge, which is the idea of taking a form that had been used for unserious poetry. The Songs of Innocence and of Experience are in the form of nursery rhymes. That's part of what's so interesting about them. But what Blake has done, which is just an amazing idea, is to write really serious um, psychological and political poems that sound like nursery rhymes. Um, that he takes this form and does something vastly unusual or unexpected with it, but deceptively so. And the idea then is that you take a public form which doesn't seem to be personalized at all, and you personalize it or you focus it in a way on the depth and complexity 
of the human psyche in a way that people hadn't thought to do before. Wrongly hadn't thought to do, but hadn't thought to do before. At about the same time, people are getting really interested in the ballads that they are hearing and that are being repeated still and for centuries all over England. In the mid-18th century, about the time that Blake was born, um, there was a man, a bishop named Percy, um, who started collecting what he called relics of old English poetry. And what he did was he went around transcribing ballads. Um, he would go to villages, he would go around, um, he would hear someone recite a ballad, he would hear that there was a really cool ballad that people knew, and then he would write it down. And he published three volumes of these ballads um, called Relics of um, Ancient English Poetry. And um, a whole lot of the ballads that still survive, survive because he transcribed them. Um, after him, other people transcribed them. Among them was Sir Walter Scott, who is most famous now for having written Ivanhoe. Um, Walter Scott was a novelist, and he's actually, he was insanely popular in his day, um, but his novels are kind of unreadable now. Um, and it's just that he doesn't um, tell a story as we have learned novels could, could tell stories. Um, but he was also a really, really wonderful poet. Um, and you know some lines of his, even though you don't know they're his. Um, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. You may think that that's just some old and, and cheesy proverb. Um, but it's actually two lines of a poem of Walter Scott's. Um, and his poems are really, really wonderful. He stopped writing poetry when he read the poetry of Lord Byron. And he said, Byron is doing everything that I do better than I could possibly do it. I'm going to write boring novels instead. Um, the boring is my edition. Um, and so he became a novelist and, as I say, most famous now for Ivanhoe. Um, but his poems are really, really wonderful. Scott also collected ballads. He lived in the north of England near the Scottish border. He was interested in the relations, in the vexed relations between England and Scotland, and he collected ballads. And then among the things that he did was he not only collected them, but he wrote fake ballads. So to give you a sense of a ballad, not a lyrical ballad, but a ballad written by a poet who is friends with, is hanging out with the lyric poets. Look at, um, if you have the um, page with the, the uh, Trois Cobris on it, um, on the top left, um, look at the poem called Proud Maisie. And that is um, a mad song. It actually appears in a novel of Scott's. And what happens in the novel is there is um, a woman, a very old woman, very cruel old woman, who at the end of her life goes mad, and then she sings this song, which means that it's not a lyric poem. It's not coming out of her. It's not coming out of Scott. The great thing about mad songs in opera, in literature, is that you don't have to know who the singer is. The madness of the song itself is part of... Um, the thing that frames it as separate from any need to know why it's being sung. That's a great thing about mad songs. But what he's imitating are the ballads that he's also transcribed. So Proud Maisie is a little narrative. Proud Maisie is in the wood. 
walking so early. Sweet robin sits on the bush, singing so rarely. Tell me, thou bonny bird, when shall I marry me? That's Maisie who asks that. When six broad gentlemen, Kirkward, shall carry ye. So when six brawny gentlemen um, carry you towards the churchyard. Who makes the bridal bed? Birds say truly. The gray-haired sexton that delves the grave duly. The glowworm or grave and stone shall light thee steady. The owl from the steeple sing, welcome, proud lady. So that's a pretty great spooky poem. We know immediately what it's about, partly from the title, that Maisie is too proud for relationships with other human beings. And nevertheless, she wants to know when she'll be married. And the some sort of impersonal or at least inhuman voice of nature, the robin sitting on the branch, the bonny bird, tells her her future. And her future is that she will, that her marriage will be marriage to, not even to death, as though death were personified, but um, that her marriage will be her death, that that's when she will Mary. She will go to church not to um, go to the altar, but to go to the church yard. Um, part of what makes this a ballad is that the narrative doesn't quite make psychological sense. If it doesn't quite, I'm not saying it doesn't, it just doesn't quite make psychological sense. If you were trying to make this a realistic narrative, what you would have, well, first of all, she wouldn't be talking to birds. Um, but even if she were, tell me that bonnie bird, when shall I marry me? The bird's answer is, when six broad gentlemen word shall carry ye. She should know what that means. It's clear what it means. We know what it means. That is, when shall I get married? When you are brought to your grave. But because the ballad is not from her point of view, but from our point of view, not that we are there or implicated by it, but because it is a story for us, we're only interested in this series of innocent riddles that she poses and the terrible answers to those riddles. So we're not saying, wait, why doesn't she get what the bird is saying and stop asking since these answers are so terrible? The bird gives her the answer, but it's not as though she hears the answer. It's also not as though she doesn't hear it. That's not, a, that's not an issue in the poem, whether she hears the answer or not. So, so she asks a question, but it's not a question where her response to its answer is part of the narrative. The only thing we care about is what the response to the question is. So she asks another question, not having gotten an answer to the first question, but because she's just asking a series of questions. Who makes the bridal bed? Birdie, say truly. Kind of a synonymous question with the first, and the bird gives a synonymous answer. The gray-headed sexton that delves the grave duly. So it is the sexton who's the grave digger who will make the bridal bed. And then, again, very balladically, the bird keeps singing. We're now expecting an alternation. 
where she asks a question and the bird answers it. But now the bird keeps going. The glowworm or grave and stone shall light thee steady. The owl from the steeple sing, welcome, proud lady. And what we've gone off into is the fact that the world is not our own and not ourselves. We've got off into this sort of um, just spooky world of song, not a world we live in, but a world that we can hear. So Scott gets something essential about ballads. Take a look at the ballad called The Trois Corbys, um, which is one of the ones that he collected. Um, there are many, many v um, variations of this poem that survive. Um, this is uh, the variation that Scott, or one of the variations Scott collected. Um, and um, you can see its similarity. But this is a real ballad, not an invented ballad like Scott's, but a real ballad. Twa there means two. Um, T-W-A T becomes T-W-O now. And there is a speaker, an I, um, but only for the first two lines. That is, the I is there only to disappear. The I is there as the person who's reciting the ballad and not as a character within it. And that, again, is what makes it not a lyric. Yeah? Um, what's a Corby? A Corby is a crow. So thank you for asking. Um, what's the French for crow? All right. What is it? Yeah. So it's um, so uh, this is a North English or Scottish um, variety of the word for crow. So, as I was walking all Elaine, what do you think Elaine means? No, <laughs> nice, but change it. If toi becomes two, what does Elaine become? Alone. Yes. So as I was walking all Elaine, I heard toi Corby's making a main. What do we think main is? Moan. Yes. So as I was walking all alone, I heard Twa Corby's making a main. The tain unto t'other say, so tain is there means the one. The tain unto the t'other say, where shall we gang and dine today? Gang there means go. Um, so I'll just tell you the words, what the words are meaning, and then we'll go through it again. Um, you know what the best laid plans of mice and men oft times do? Anyone? The best laid plans of my, you know, that's where the title comes from, right? The novel, the Steinbeck novel, the movie, John Malkovich. The best play laid plans of mice and men. You know the next line? It's often quoted as it's oft times go astray. It's actually another friend of Wordsworth's, Robert Burns. It's oft times gang aglay. That's Scots for go astray. Gang means go. So the best laid plans of mice and men, oft times gang go aglay go astray. So, as I was walking all alone, I heard Twa Corby's making a main. The tain unto the t'other say, where shall we gang and dine today? In behind yon old fail dyke, fail there means grass, so behind that old grassy dyke, that is that um, um, hill that has that has been grown, that, that artificial hill on which grass has grown. I walk there lies a new slain knight, and nobody kens that he lies there, but his hawk, his hound, and lady 
fair. So again, notice that among the things that you will get in ballads are um, inaccurate rhymes. But that's fine because we're hearing them. They're like folk songs. So dyke and knight don't rhyme, but they rhyme closely enough for a ballad. You will um, remember this ballad. So behind, young, behind that old grass dyke, there lies a new slain knight, says one of the crows. I'm aware of the fact that there lies a new slain knight. And nobody kens, nobody knows that he lies there, but his hawk, his hound, and lady fair. So his hound is to the hunting gain, gone. His hawk to fetch the wild fowl hame. So his hawk has gone to um, hunt and bring back to its nest a wild fowl. His lady's tain another mate. His lady has taken another mate. So we may make our dinner sweet. So what are they going to make their dinner of? The, the slain knight. You'll sit on his white hace bane, that is his breastbone, um, and I'll pike out his bonny blue een. What do we think that means? Eyes, yes. And pike would then mean pick or poke, yep. And I'll pike out his bonny blue een. With I lock of his gowden hair, that is with every lock of his golden hair, we'll theek our nest when it grows bare. What do you think theek means there? Um, no other possibility. Thicken. Yes, so with each one of his golden hairs, we'll thicken our nest when it grows bare. Monia one for him makes main. So many people are moaning for him. But Nan shall ken where he is gain. No one will know where he's gone. Or his white banes, when they are bare, what do we think banes is? Bones, good. The wind shall blaw forever mare. The wind shall blow forevermore. Um, so again, you, this poem doesn't and shouldn't make, quite make logical sense. Um, because the first terrible thing that happens to the new slain knight is that he's been slain, that he's dead. The second terrible thing is that his three most loyal friends, his hawk, his hound, and his lady fair, don't care. That is that living in a world like the world we live in, you don't matter, he doesn't matter. The two crows are simply commenting on that. Um, no one knows that he's there, except his hawk, his hound, and his lady fair. But his hound has gone out hunting. His master is dead, so his hound has gone out hunting. His hawk has also gone out um, towering and stooping for game. And his lady has just taken another mate. So they all know he's there, but they have lives to live. And so part of his experience is an experience that only the crows can describe. Only the crows are aware of it. Not because they care, but because they stand for that awareness. They are the ones who have that awareness. That's a kind of balladic knowledge of the indifference, the spooky indifference, which itself is almost an oxymoron, the spooky indifference of the world. So. His hound is to the hunting gain, his hawk to fetch the wild fowl hame, his ladies tain another mate, so we may make our dinner sweet. 
so they don't have to worry that anyone is going to interrupt them at their dinner, um, which is on the night. So Yeel sit on his white host bane, and I'll pike out his bonny blue een. With I Laco's golden hair will thick our nest when it grows bare. And then, contradicting the third stanza, we get the fifth. Many a one for him makes main. Many people are mourning him. But that's not a contradiction. It's only a setup. It is a contradiction. It doesn't matter that it's a contradiction. The point is that no one knows where this knight is except the two, um, except the two crows. And those two crows who know where the knight is, um, what they know is where the knight is. And where the knight is is a pile of bones with the wind blowing over it. And um, many one for him makes main is not a way of saying, oh, but there are people who are sad about him and that's okay, that's good, it means his life meant something. That's not what ballads say. All it says is he's gone from their lives and they don't know where he is because we alone in the world do. Many one for him makes main, but none shall ken where he is gain, or his white banes when they are bare, the wind shall blaw for ever mare. Yeah. It's not made up words, it's um, dialect. So what Scott was doing is, um, as, as Percy and as all the ballad um, uh, transcribers did, was they were trying to get the dialect, they were spelling it so that you would get the dialect right. Um, and this is a northern English dialect close to Scott's. Uh, hence the best laid plants of mice and men, oftentimes gang of glay. Um, Robert Burns there, or do you guys know, anyone know what we sleek it timorous beastie is the first line of? We sleek it, timorous beastie. Oh, what emotions in thy breastie. That's also a Robert Burns poem written in, in um, a sort of Scots dialect, and it's called To a Mouse. Um, so he's found a mouse, and he looks at it and he says, We, what do you think we means? Yeah, we know what it means. It's actually Scots dialect. Um, Scottish dialect, when you talk about the wee small hours of the morning. It's not actually standard English. It's a Scottish word for wee, very little. Um, so sleek it means something like um, slick down. Um, not slick as in he's so slick, but slick as in slick down. Timorous, we know. And then beastie is beast, but it's a Scottish form of beast, a dialect form of beast. Um, so that's a language that people spoke. If you, you can um, also look at um, transcriptions of Appalachian folk songs and Appalachian ballads in um, the US, and you'll see similar sorts of things. If you go see the great Coen Brothers movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, a lot of the songs sung in that movie. Do people know that movie? It's based on the Odyssey, but um, it's uh, also got lots of Appalachian folk songs in it. And once again, it, they are, many of them, in dialect. Um, so this is a northern English dialect. It's, um, the name of the book was um, Ballads, um, no, was it um, Examples of Border Minstrelsy is um, uh, the name of Scott's collection. 
Um, so let's look at one more ballad. This is a little bit after Wordsworth and Coleridge by the great minor poet. There's a wonderful category of great minor poets. Um, in a way, the best category ever. Um, and by the great minor poet Thomas Lovell Beddoes, who um, this is a song from a play. So it's not quite a mad song, but it's not a song that you can have any more context for than that it's from a play and someone sings it. So like a mad song, like a song from a play, um, and I'll just pause to tell you that there's a wonderful book of 20th century poetry by the poet Kenneth Koch, which is simply called Songs from the Plays. I, actually, I quoted this for you like the first day of class. That's around songs. Everything becomes a play attributed to William Shakespeare, even though it isn't. So Songs from the Plays is you don't have to know where they're from. It's the songs that matter, um, like songs from Shakespeare's plays. So this is a song from a play called Death's Jest Book. That's the name of the play. And here's a song, Old Adam. Have you guys found that? Old Adam the Carrion Crow? So it's another, it's another song, a ballad-like song about crows. Old Adam the Carrion Crow, the old crow of Cairo, he sat in the shower and let it flow under his tail and over his crest. And through every feather leaked the wet weather and the boughs swung under his nest. So again, it's a crow. His name is Adam, but that hardly matters. All that matters is we're overhearing a crow and it's raining. For his beak, it was heavy with marrow. That is marrow from the bones of a dead man. For his beak, it was heavy with marrow. Is that the wind dying? Oh, no. It's only two devils that blow through a murderer's bones to and fro in the ghost's moonshine. So those four lines are going to turn out to be the refrain of the poem. Ballads will frequently have refrains, as we'll see again in a moment, which is to say a set of lines that get repeated, not because they make sense as the next lines, but because they have become simply their own chantings. It's like a song within a song, decontextualized and all the more powerful for that. So is that the wind dying? Oh, no. It's only two devils that blow through a murderer's bones to and fro in the ghost's moonshine. And then Adam speaks. Ho, Eve, my gray carrion wife. So carrion crow, carrion wife, um, they're both crows, and they feed on carrion. That is, they feed on dead creatures. Ho, Eve, my gray carrion wife, when we have supped on king's marrow, where shall we drink and make merry our life? Our nest, it is Queen Cleopatra's skull. Tis cloven and cracked and battered and hacked, but with tears of blue eyes it is full. The crows love those blue eyes, but with tears of blue eyes it is full. Let us drink then, my raven of Cairo. And then the refrain, is that the wind dying? Oh no, it's only two devils that blow through a murderer's bones to and fro in the ghost's moonshine. So what else would you want to know about the ghost moonshine except that it's the ghost moonshine and the two crows named Adam and Eve are talking about it and enjoying the wind? You don't want to know more. 
There's something that's been utterly focused here, out of context, which is what makes it what it is. One more. Here's a ballad um, collected by Percy. This is the one called Edward, Edward, one of the most famous of all ballads. And again, it's in um, a North English dialect, um, and we'll have to translate some of it into standard English. Um, a question is asked, why does your brand say drop we blued, Edward, Edward? So that is, why does your sword, brand there means sword, so what? Drip with blood. So someone is saying to Edward, why does your brand say drop, drop with blood, Edward, Edward? Oh. Why does your brand say drop with blood? And why say sad, gang ye o? So what does gang mean? We already know. Yeah, so why are you going around so sadly? Why does your sword so drop with blood? And why are you going around so sadly? And Edward answers, Oh, I a killed my hawk, say guid. Mither, mither. So now we know that Edward is answering his mother. And why is his sword full of blood? And why does he look sad? Because he's killed his hawk. Lots of hawks here. This time the hawk dies. Oh, I have killed my hawk, say guid, mither, mither. I've killed my hawk so good, mother, mother. Oh, I have killed my hake, my hawk, say guid, and I had nae mare but he o. I had no other hawk but him o. I had nae mare but he o. But she doesn't think that can be the answer. Your hawk is blue, it was never see red. Edward, Edward, your hawk's blood wasn't that red. Your hawk's blood was never see red. My dear son, I tell thee, O. Notice how the O's there are making those lines into refrains. And so he gives another answer. Oh, I a killed my red roan steed, mither, mither. Oh, I a killed my red roan steed that erst was say fair and free, O. So I killed my red roan horse that used to be so fair and free. She, again, doesn't think that's the answer. Your steed was old, and ye hae got mare, Edward, Edward. Your steed was old, and you have more of them. Your steed was old, and ye got mare. Some other duel ye dree o. Some other dole you are suffering. Dree there means are suffering or enduring. Some other duel ye dree o. So he finally gives the true answer. Oh, I hae killed my fodder, dear. Mither, mither. Oh, I hae killed my fodder dear. Alas, and way is me, oh. So first he says his hawk, then his horse, and now his father. Is his mother shocked? No, she asks him the question. And what in penance will you drive for that? What penance will you endure for that? Edward, Edward. And what in penance will you drive for that? My dear son, now tell me, oh. He gives his answer. I'll set my feet in yonder boat. Mither, mither, I'll set my feet in yonder boat, and I'll fare over the sea, O. So she's wondering if that's a good idea. And what will you do with your towers and your ha, that is your hall? Edward, Edward, what will you do with your towers and your hall that were so fair to see, O? So what are you going to do with your stuff if you do penance by crossing the sea? His answer, I'll let them stand till they down fall. Translate? Easy enough? Yeah, I'll let them stand till they fall down. 
I let them stand till they down fall. Mither, mither, I let them stand till they down fall. For here never mere mon I be of. For here I may never be. I, I, I must not ever be again. I may, it is not permitted for me to be here ever again. Really, she asks, and so another question. And what will ye leave to your bairns and your wife, Edward, Edward? Do people know what bairns means? Children, yeah, as in Macbeth. It's what Macduff calls his children. And what will ye leave to your bairns and your wife, Edward, Edward? And what will ye leave to your bairns and your wife when ye gang over the CO? So what's he going to leave them? The answer is the world is room, the room of the world. Let them beg thray life, mither, mither. The world is room. Let them beg thray life. Let them beg throughout their life. For then never more will I see you. And then his mother asks a final question. And what will ye leave to your ain mither dear? Edward, Edward. So what will you leave to me? And what will ye leave to your ain mother dear? My dear son, now tell me, oh, and then the terrible discovery that we make at the ending. The curse of hell! I don't think I said that loud enough. <laughs> the curse of hell! You think they heard? From me shall ye bear, mither, mither. The curse of hell from me shall ye bear. The curse of hell from me shall ye bear. Sick counsels ye gave to me, oh, because of the counsel, such counseling you gave to me. So what we discover, not in a, any kind of psychologically plausible way, but is pure plot, what we discover at the end is his mother had him kill his father. That is, that everything that's going on here um, is his mother's doing out of her own greed for what Edward had, what his father had. And you can't make this make psychological sense. Of course, she knows what he's done. Um, it makes psychological sense for how we learn the story rather than making psychological sense for how people would actually talk about such things. But that's how ballads work. So now take a look finally, because we have our usual, uh, we're actually, oh, look at that. We're getting to the, it's almost the end of class part of the class early. So that's great. Um, the amazing poem, it's a, one of a series of poems often called the Lucy Poems by Wordsworth, um, whose first line is, a slumber did my spirit seal. And it's an eight-line poem. It's in what's often called ballad meter, although the ballads we've been looking at don't tend to be in this meter. Ballads are in lots of different meters. But ballad meter is tetrameter, that is eight syllables of four feet, or four feet, um, followed by trimeter, um, six syllables, or three feet. Um, and that alternation between slightly longer and slightly shorter lines is typical of ballads. So here is essentially a lyrical ballad. The speaker says, a slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. That already makes it a lyric. It's his experience. It's not Edward. And why is your spirit so sealed up, Edward, Edward? And why is your spirit so sealed up? I had no human fears, though. 
doesn't work. Um, it's a lyric. A slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. So very simple, but worth thinking about. A slumber did my spirit seal. Seal's an odd word. Um, but the first thing it means is I was asleep. My spirit was not aware of the world. It was sealed up all in rest, to quote Shakespeare's Sonnet 73. Death set sleep is death's second self that seals up all in rest. A slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. I wasn't afraid of anything that could happen to humans. Why not? You may ask yourself, and the answer is the next two lines. She, she, the subject of the poem, she seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. So what was he not afraid of? That anything would happen to her. She seemed so perfect, so wonderful, that he didn't see how she could feel the touch of earthly years. And then a gap between the first and the second stanzas. And in that gap, she dies. And it's only given to us, her death occurs in the gap. And now we know that we've gone from a slumber, did my spirit seal past tense? I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. But now we're in the now. And Wordsworth's nows are really important. No motion has she now. No force. She neither hears nor sees. Now notice what's happened here is that something metaphorical. She seemed a thing that could not feel. Thing there is simply a kind of pet name like, oh, you poor thing. But now she's become a thing. No motion has she now. No force. She seemed a thing that could not feel. Now she neither hears nor sees. No motion hath she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees, rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. So now she's simply rolled around by the world as it spins with rocks and stones and trees. And notice... There's a debate that there shouldn't be as to whether that's a happy ending or not in the end. Rocks and stones, but oh, yay, trees too. But that's the wrong way to understand it. It's trees are just like rocks and stones. The difference between rocks and stones is almost nothing. And trees then turns out to be just another thing in the world like rocks and stones. Rocks and stones and trees here are like the white bones in the ballads that we were looking at. That's what she's become. So the lyric here is, I was in love with her and confident and not anxious and thought, it's all great, and now she's dead, and my life has turned into the strangeness and the grimness and the hopelessness and even the irrelevance of hope that ballads are about. So lyrical ballads are lyrics about how the experience of being a human is ultimately described by ballads. And that's the amazing thing that Wordsworth and Coleridge are doing, 
in trying to write this new kind of poem, the lyrical ballad. Okay, we'll pick up a little bit more on this tomorrow. Bring in your Norton Anthology, because we'll be talking about more Wordsworth. Thank you.